Like many intelligent men, Stone took a rather suspicious attitude towards his own brain, which he saw as a precise and skilled but temperamental machine. He was never surprised when the machine failed to perform, though he feared those moments and hated them. In his blackest hours, Stone doubted the utility of all thought, of all intelligence. There were times when he envied the laboratory rats he worked with. Their brains were so simple. Certainly they did not have the intelligence to destroy themselves. That was a peculiar invention of man. He often argued that human intelligence was more trouble than it was worth. It was more destructive than creative, more confusing than revealing, more discouraging than satisfying, more spiteful than charitable. There were times when he saw man, with his giant brain, as equivalent to the dinosaurs. Every schoolboy knew that dinosaurs had outgrown themselves, had become too large and ponderous to be viable. No one ever thought to consider whether the human brain, the most complex structure in the known universe, making fantastic demands on the human body in terms of nourishment and blood, was not analogous. Perhaps the human brain had become a kind of dinosaur for man, and perhaps, in the end, would prove his downfall. Michael Crichton with some uplifting words in the Andromeda strain. This is our second episode on the book here on Literary Guys. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. And I'm author Zachary Kellyan. I love that quote from uh, Dr. Jeremy Stone. Mm-hmm. Made me realize that were he around today and a real person, he would for sure be a crypto bro. Oh, seriously. And living in Miami, <laughs> which I have heard is the new crypto capital of the United States. Now, there is this really interesting, you know, we, we talk about masculinity in so many forms on this podcast. And, and I think that this novel does an interesting job at kind of peeling back another layer of masculinity, which is, you know, that academic masculinity. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I have this IQ or I have this paper signed by this person that gives me this title and therefore I am better than you. And I find it very interesting to kind of see it played out in real time throughout the course of A Drama Strain. And much like Saturday Night Live, we are obsessed here with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is also a great piece on understanding the academic mindset, particularly of people who have been in it for a long period of time and are caught up in very much these sort of academic arguments. If you want to join us in that fandom, we play a Virginia Woolf drinking game every year. Where Uh, you drink when they drink? Exactly. Yeah, it's not terribly (laughs) creative. But it gets the job done. And there's no mixing. And you have to drink this weird thing that Crystal came up with called Bergen. It's very confusing. (laughs) Anyhow, without going too deep down that rabbit hole, the thing we wanted to dig into today is this oddball, if we want to call it that, concept, which is introduced called the odd man hypothesis. It seems to be a central part of the story, which kind of makes some sort of psychological sense, although it's couched in this weird misogyny that I don't necessarily believe is necessarily true, and the whole thing is super weird. You know, we would be remiss not to talk about how the odd man hypothesis is eventually shared with us, and that is, of course, in the form of a chart and or graph, of which this novel has many. It has a very large number of them. In fact, the book is already short, but when you take all the graphs out, it gets really short. (laughs) But it reminded, I had forgotten those were in there. It reminds me like, you know, Terminal Man has those. uh, Jurassic Park has Mm -hmm. those. I can definitely think of a few other Michael Crichton. Sphere, I know, has them where it is, yeah, I don't know if it's 
padding or if it's meant to kind of create this sense that this is a real world document that you're viewing or engaged with? I think it's fairly effective, actually. Like to me, it basically connects with the sense of, you know, looking at recorded history and getting a view into sort of the decision-making that was happening. And I think if you're going to create a timeless novel, you really want to include a lot of computer-generated images from 1969. Using ASCII art, so you know it's good. (laughs) But yeah, the odd man hypothesis is something that's kind of teased out over the course of, I don't know, like 60 pages or something from when we first hear about it to where it's actually kind of revealed. It's even redacted in some of the uh, classified forms that people are reading. It's this Mm -hmm. big played-out tease that is essentially saying, if I'm reading it correctly, I'm no scientist, Mm -hmm. that uh, single men are the only people capable of making decisions. Well, as a single man, I can say that I have difficulty figuring out what to have for dinner. (laughs) So if somehow single men are the best, then I I don't get it. Yeah, it's harkening back. I think it might be a Yale study, perhaps, that they're talking about. It sounds like the whole Yale thing. Yeah, that that whole thing. Wherein, you know, through a series of tests and kind of like binary yes or no hypotheticals as it related to catastrophic events or crisis management, they found that single men made the quote-unquote right decision, how they were determining the right decision in any of those scenarios. I have no idea. It's never explained. They made the right decision about 89% of the time, whereas single women and married women, both around equally around 40% of the time, made the right decision, and then married men made the right decision only about 30% of the time, mm-hmm. which uh, is an interesting condemnation of men who get married from a man himself married five times. When does it happen? Is it like when you say I do, suddenly you lose like 50 some points? I don't know. If I'm being in charge of a potential world ending scenario, doesn't the health of my marriage play into that decision making? If I really don't like my wife and I don't have a reason to go home to her, maybe I am refusing to turn that key and letting that auto detonator go off. Yeah. So for the sake of our listeners here, this all comes down to a nuclear device. Mm Mm-hmm that basically the way in which Jeremy Stone was able to get a nuclear device as a self-destruct mechanism placed inside of wildfire was through arguing with the government and presenting this odd man hypothesis. And this nuclear device was a reverse self-destruct mechanism. It wasn't the sort of thing that you would arm and use a key or something like that in order to arm it, and you would give that to the person who was there as the quote-unquote odd man. Instead, it was that the self-destruct would be automatically engaged by some sort of failure of the equipment or of death or any number of things, and that the so-called odd man would have a key to disable the bomb from going off. That was the big decision that that individual needed to make. And his status as a single man somehow trumped the fact that the character who is the odd man in this novel, Hall, has never read any of the briefings and is completely in the dark about the whole project. Presumably, he still is given the key because he still is the one who's able to make the best decision when the time comes. So I think it's clear that there is... A misogyny on this, especially the single men versus single women type angle. And I think we should just take it as a given that that is not anything but pretty toxic. But then putting that aside, let's just talk about single men, okay? Mm -hmm. I I got a thing for single men. They're your type. Yes, they are. I think it's interesting to 
consider what are the positive and negative properties that we do associate with single men that might make them good or bad at decision making. Not comparing to anything else, just amongst themselves. Because I think what you're pointing out right now is actually that a lot of single men tend to be a little more flighty, a little bit less informed as to what's going on. That you know they're a little less settled in things in general. You know, we're speaking generalities here. And I, I think one of the traits that I associate with single men in general is the fact that they do take less into account when they make decisions. Mm. That maybe I'm over-indexing on the frat bro mentality here, but... I think that tends to be someone who's younger because it seems to be a rite of passage in society that men get married at some point. So you're looking at perhaps more reckless behavior. Is that really what you want here? It's interesting. I can kind of buy into the notion that if you are a man or woman, you are responsible for a nuclear family that you've brought into this world. And you are faced with a decision that might put them in jeopardy but might save a greater number of people. I can see where you're thinking could be a little bit clouded, right? Because Mm -hmm. that's your wife, your husband, your kids. You know them. You don't know strangers across the globe who you might spare from nuclear annihilation. I can kind of see where that notion comes from. But yeah, the idea that simply by not being married trumps any level of experience, trumps even just age. I would think a single man in his 20s is going to be less capable of making a decision than a single man in his 60s, just because the man in his 60s has seen more and confronted more obstacles. And that doesn't really seem to even play into this test. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really, because it's such a fundamental part of the novel, as you reread this as an adult... I didn't remember the odd man hypothesis as a kid. Probably I glanced over it just to get to some of the more action pieces. I mean, you you got Air Force jets flying over an apocalyptic town, death town in the desert. Like, Mm -hmm. there's some cool moments for kids to latch onto in this. But yeah, that notion that that test is the bedrock upon which wildfire has been based is is a very Mm -hmm. strange choice. And I think is probably when you refer to in our previous episode, this novel might not hold up as a more adult reread. Mm Mm-hmm. It definitely adds some depth to the story. It's not well established or well argued, but I think that it's definitely something to consider. The thing is, it's plausible to me that such thinking could actually influence decision-making. You get enough people together, things like that start to sound kind of right, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, I think we've seen that with the pandemic to kind of bring this into why we brought Andromeda Strain here into Mm -hmm. season two of Literary Guys. Whenever, I think the majority of Americans at one time or another wanted to get behind whatever they could do to help minimize the spread of infection. But because the science was still catching up to what this new variant was and what it was capable of doing and how it was mutating, we got a lot of things that turned out not to be true. If you remember, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were told masks weren't effective Mm -hmm. and we were told to wash our hands continuously. Mm -hmm. And now we're almost being told the reverse now. And I think it's interesting where you just see that time and time again, people kind of reinforce their own biases in, in, in group think. I mean, Crichton himself even references it at some point in this novel, another study called uh, the, the Theory of 48 or something like that, where for the longest time, science had said there were 48 chromosomes and had the photographic evidence to prove it. 
And then later science was updated and said, actually, humans have 46 chromosomes. And when they went back and looked at the original photos, they only counted 46 to begin with there as well. So there was always only 46. There was no evidence of these two extra chromosomes. But Mm -hmm. because one scientist study, a couple studies promoted it, it just became that natural group think. And so I do think that there's an interesting idea to be mined of Mm -hmm. four men in a sequestered environment that is very high stakes who among them is likely to be the best decision maker i just can't buy that it's the single man Mm -hmm. or at least a group of them like you know maybe you need two keys maybe you need sure something like that like you know the hunt for an october there are two missile keys the starship enterprise has two keys that's a good point what we have learned in our course of devouring pop culture science fiction is that you do not have an auto destruct sequence without two keys come on Mm-hmm. And you cannot give those two keys to the same person because <laughs> that also fails. Right, right. You know, there's some weird, funky stuff in this book when you go back on a reread. I don't know if you recall the gentleman who was drinking Sterno straight in the desert. I don't know if you recall his name. Um, I want to say it's Peter Jackson, but, the, but that can't be right. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's New Zealand's own Peter Jackson, apparently, is this ghostly apparition in the middle of the desert. And then... I don't know if this made sense to you, and maybe I'm missing something, but when they do the flyover the next day after, you know, this town's been kind of wiped out by the Andromeda strain, they realize that the vultures have descended on the town, and they don't want the vultures to spread the disease farther. Mm -hmm. So they gas the town, but then the baby and the old man are still alive, even after gassing the town again. Maybe it was a bird? A bird specific? Yeah, that, that was kind of my read on it. I don't know. I mean, I assume all of our Air Force jets are equipped with bird specific knockout gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah. And then, you know, some of the stuff that the procedure, that arduous procedure they have to kind of detoxify their bodies. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming some of that science was like cutting edge when Crichton was writing about it in the late 60s. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it seems very silly now in retrospect and seems like some missed opportunities. Yeah, I think we now have clean room technology mm-hmm. that a lot of it's come out of the chip manufacturing world, too. They don't go through that process. Like at some point, it, it seems like you're going to kill the person yeah. before they ever are actually clean. And they go through all of these immersion processes and inner and outer disinfectants. And it's just this whole ordeal. And then at the very end, when they burn off your skin hair so that that's not like creating, you know, microbial environments, you're given a shield to protect your beard. (laughs) 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 Because this was the late 60s and you can't expect scientists to do their jobs without their beards. Well, how would you know they were scientists? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, so there's just some strange things in this book, which it'll be interesting, you know, maybe at some point to go back and reread some of the other Crichton greats. I mean, Sphere and Jurassic Park, I also think, are two of my favorite novels, but are Mm -hmm. they? Maybe they're just as silly in in retrospect. I'm not sure. Well, I think this one is interesting, as I was talking about before, in that it points in so many ways to the folly of humanity. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what the quote, which I opened up the episode with here today, is about. That this is an avoidable situation. This is a thing that mankind created. And intriguingly, mankind was ill-equipped to deal with it. In many ways, I'm not giving away too much here, that mankind didn't need to do much of anything here. That (laughs) the situation kind of took care of itself. But it very well could have not been that. And if it had been anything but that, everyone's dead. Right. Like, that to me is 
almost the folly here that with all of this cutting edge 1969 technology that they had, they couldn't do a damn thing about this. Is nature find a way the deus ex machina of all Michael Crichton novels? Um, I don't know. I've only read a few of them. Certainly it is in his sex thriller Disclosure. Really? I, I, I don't know. I think I read it and then I, when I was 12 and then I felt guilty when I was reading the sex scenes and then hid the book behind my bookshelf, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. As one does when you grow up in a healthy environment. Yes, indeed. But that's another discussion for another day here. Do we have a sponsor here that wants to talk about any of these challenging topics we have today? Um, we do. You know, we've, we've actually got a celebrity sponsor today. Ooh, really? Hello, Peter Jackson here. And I hope you'll buy my newest movie, Nightmare Alley, out on DVD and Blu-ray. It's been a passion project of mine ever since I was the sole survivor of an apocalyptic-level contagion event in my home state of Arizona. I was so lucky to bring this film to you in your home theater, and lucky that my tragic alcoholism resulted in me drinking a can of straight sterno and elevating my blood pH levels to outside the range of your average interstellar organism. Thanks for buying my movie. That is the biggest name we've ever had. I was really excited. And, and the fact that, you know, he's had this whole New Zealand persona for so long. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you heard that accent just now, it's pretty fake. So I'm glad that he's finally going back to his traditional Arizona roots. Mm-hmm. Well, since we're on the topic of Peter Jackson here for a little bit, to, to draw an awkward parallel, that here is a novel about four greats in their field who got together and... A fellowship, if you will. Yes, underground. But that Peter Jackson's most recent project has been Get Back, which is about four other visionaries in their field creating arguably the greatest rock band of all time. And for those listeners who have not taken the nine hours to watch it, I will say it is totally worth it. It gets six, maybe seven thumbs up from me. Is, is Jeremy Stone Lennon, or I guess he could be McCartney? I'm thinking McCartney here, because he was more of the ringleader mm-hmm. of the group. I think Mark Hall would be the Lennon character. Okay. Oblivious, unaware, single. Very single. <laughs> no. Uh, in all seriousness, it is worth watching. It is actually a fantastic look at masculine interaction. Hmm. And how people drive towards making difficult decisions, creative decisions. You know, here in this book, we're talking about these life and death and societal things. There is creativity in this, but not a whole lot. But get back, Peter Jackson's other non-sterno masterpiece is very much about how men work together to create art. Hmm. And I don't really know if there's too much out there that, that deals with that subject, which to me, I think is fascinating. One of the things that uh, we, we talked in our previous episode about these men and how they're kind of just ciphers. They're just there to mm-hmm. play a role and they don't have a great deal of backstory. You don't have any natural affinity for these men. But I also feel like in a way that the tension is the world ending and not necessarily that we're supposed to care about these characters. But I do think it's interesting that there seems to be this notion that pure science is the way to go and that creative pursuits outside of that aren't valued because none of these men seem to have any interest it would have been so cool if like some like archaic interest 
that one of them had ended up, you know, playing a, a greater mm-hmm. role and, and how this all played out. And, you know, I can't remember much about the character of Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, uh, Michael Crichton's other well-known novel, but it seems to me he was just about chaos theory and could only talk about chaos theory. The crypto bro of his time, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's interesting that there's no room for that kind of renaissance man in the Crichton verse. And we see them in the tech world, for instance. Like, there's the anecdote that's told many times about how Steve Jobs had an affinity for calligraphy and typography, and that that was one of the key reasons why Apple put so much money into developing desktop publishing with correct spacing between letters. It's why if you had a Macintosh back in the day, it looked so much better, so much superior to what you would get from a PC. And yes, they eventually caught up, but it's about those creative pursuits that influence the scientific greatness. What you're talking about would definitely have not only added some additional flavor and colorfulness to the story, but I think we would have gotten something more than ASCII art diagrams in order to help illustrate some complex topics. I think this is probably a good time to wrap things up. In the next episode, we're going to really dig into the action sequence of this book, kind of out of nowhere, this very plodding novel that is heavy on diagrams suddenly becomes a laser-filled chase scene, which, I mean, it kind of works, but... I think it'll be interesting to talk about and also the broader impact that Crichton has had on modern science fiction. I mean, one of my favorite takeaways from rereading this novel is true or not, according to Michael Crichton in 1969, the United States owned 90% of the world's lasers. Is that in the book? Yes. What? (laughs) I do not remember this. Okay. Well, I think this is a great time to thank the Stardust, to thank Edgar Bergamot on the piano. Crystal for the lovely themed cocktails. We were drinking Baby Tears and Sterno, which, uh, I mean, not her best cocktail, but I don't think it was meant to be. No, I think the key property of this cocktail is it will raise your pH level. Anyhow, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and give us a review. It really helps us. Hit us up at Literary Guys on social media. Email us at litguys at gmail.com. We'd just love to uh, engage with you guys and, and continue this dialogue as we dig deeper into the realm of literature this season. Until next time, this has been Literary Guys, signing off.